Hello, and welcome to PwC's Accounting and Reporting podcast series. Our mission is to inform and educate accountants and other stakeholders on today's most important accounting issues. I'm Heather Horn, a partner in our national office, and I'll be your host today. In today's episode, we'll focus on one of the building blocks of financial reporting, consolidations. We'll talk a bit about the history of consolidation accounting and then delve into the different accounting models. Back in the studio with me today is Matt Sabatini, a partner in our national office. So Matt, thanks so much for being here today. Looking forward to an interesting conversation about consolidations. Before we jump into the different models, though, can you just take a step back and give us a little bit of history, maybe talk a little bit about the scope of the guidance? Absolutely. Um, thanks for having me. Consolidation guidance and GAAP is um, it's one of the fundamental building blocks for financial reporting, right? So in order to figure out what's going to be in your financial statements, you have to know what entities you're going to consolidate to present um, on a kind of grossed up basis, right? So, so it has an interesting history, particularly over the last 15 to 20 years or so, where there's been a lot of change in, in GAAP around consolidation. I'd say back in 2004 is kind of when things really started to change. But prior to Thin that, 46. exactly right. So <laughs> prior, prior to that, it was, you know, very much what we all learned in our uh, accounting 101 class. It was you consolidate an entity when you have majority control of the board or majority control of the shareholder vote. There was guidance uh, that was that was really, really old, frankly. It was uh, ARB uh, 51 and, and FAS 94. Those have been around forever with those concepts in there. And there were some EITF issues back in the early days around how to deal with SPEs and, you know, entities where it wasn't so easy to rely on majority vote of the board or the the stock. You know, in 2004, when um, Enron um, happened, right, and and the reason why um, Enron happened was the the extensive use of SPEs and financial structuring, the FASB undertook a project to um, really fast track a change to the consolidation rules. So what, the result was FIN46, and then a couple of years later, FIN46R, FIN R, yep. which had to be revised a couple of years after, really moving the consolidation into two different models, right? So now we had our traditional voting model, which, again, I said was majority vote of board or shareholder vote, and, and what we call a variable interest entity model or VIE model. Back then, it was based on economic risk and rewards, um, which seemed to do the trick for a little while, particularly around these highly structured SPEs. Fast forward a few years and we get to 2008 and we get to the financial crisis, I think what folks at the FASB and and other preparers and investors realized was that the risk and rewards model kind of left out a big population of SPEs and didn't result in in the consolidation of certain entities that everyone felt should be consolidated. Then came FAS 167, which amended the uh, VIE rules and and really shifted the model, at least in the VIE world, to a power-based model. So you had to have power or control over the entity. Uh, a little different than the voting model, and we'll get into the details, but there was more alignment, right? It wasn't just based on, uh, based on economic risk and rewards. And since um, FAS 167 came out, there have been maybe two or three tweaks to the model as well, and uh, we, can, we can get into, I'll highlight those when they come up. Good. Very helpful. Good background. I will say my power and utilities background comes up here. I'm not sure VIEs were the only cause of Enron's demise, but definitely um, not consolidating a lot of entities was a big part of it. So with that background then, let's dive into the models and let's start with the variable interest entity or VIE model. Excellent. And that's actually where you have to start. So that's a a really good segue, right? Because in order to figure out whether or not you as the reporting entity need to consolidate an entity you're involved with, you always start at the VIE model. The idea is to figure out if you get a scope exception for the VIE model, 
uh, or if you're dealing with another entity that is a VIE, and if you can get yourself a scope exception, or if you decide the entity is not a VIE, then you go into the more traditional voting model. So good place to start. In fact, it's it's required. So I mentioned scope exceptions. Um, there aren't a lot of useful scope exceptions if you're a reporting entity under the VIE model. Um, one of the more popular ones is referred to frequently as the business scope exception. What that does is it really allows you to shortcut the VIE process, and if the entity which with you're involved meets the definition of a business under GAAP, and you meet several other criteria really focused around the design and your involvement with an entity, uh, then you maybe you can get scoped out of applying the VIE guidance. That's where people generally start with the scope exceptions, and there are some others around um, governmental entities and not-for-profits um, that, that other people might be able to avail themselves of. Generally, my experience is we don't see a lot of application of the scope exceptions. And maybe I'll just pause you, because I sure. think the business scope exception is almost a misnomer, because to your point... You do have to meet the definition of a business, but there's a lot more to it. So right. just because it's a business that you're talking about doesn't mean you're automatically out of the VIE. Absolutely. And, and it's useful to, to focus on that or highlight that. So thank you. So, so the next step, if you're reporting it, and again, thinking about consolidation in the VIE model, is whether or not you have a variable interest with an entity. And, and it's a complicated term, but it really just means do you have a relationship, an economic or contractual relationship with an entity where the value of that relationship kind of changes with the way the value of the entity changes. So a good example would be I have an equity investment in in an entity, and the value of my equity investment changes with how the value of the entity changes. So that would be a variable interest. If you have a variable interest, your next step is to decide whether the entity is a VIE. Okay, there are generally five characteristics people look at, and you can go read all of the characteristics, and I'm going to try to make it a little bit easier. The five characteristics are, are really based on the, the equity of the entity, both from a qualitative and quantitative perspective. So when you're a reporting entity and you're evaluating whether or not something's a VIE, you're trying to figure out if the equity behaves like real equity would behave. The five characteristics kind of build in, again, one is quantity. So you're looking at, is there enough equity in the entity I'm looking at for me to rely on who gets to vote a majority of that equity? And if the answer is yes, then you feel good. And it's, you know, that doesn't meet the characteristic of a VIE. If it's thinly capitalized, then you think, well, well, maybe it is a VIE. The others are really more qualitative. And it's, do the equity um, instruments get to vote? And, and do those voting rights really dictate the power and the important decisions around the entity? Do they behave economically like real equity, so are they exposed to losses, and are they potentially capped on the upside? And then there's a catch-all, which is really meant to capture like, vote parking arrangements where you have significant disproportionality between vote and economics. So there's a quantitative and a qualitative aspect to really figuring out if I should rely on the voting rights embedded within the equity or if I should be in a VIE model, which is a little bit you know, of a different, different avenue. So that's how you figure out if it's a VIE or not. So again, if, if you get a scope exception or if you conclude that the entity is not a VIE, then you're in the voting model. Okay? If it is a VIE, then you have to you know, be in the VIE model and decide, do you consolidate under that model? And if you do consolidate, you're called the primary beneficiary. Right? Just a fancy term for an entity that consolidates a VIE. And the test to get to that is you, know, you are the primary beneficiary if you have power to make the most important decisions um, around the entity, and you have a significant level of economics. So you have to meet both of those criteria to be the primary beneficiary. You don't have to have a majority of the economics uh, to be the primary beneficiary, which is a, you know, a common misconception people have around the VIE model. You just have to have a significant amount of economics. So there are more than one reporting entities that could have a significant economic relationship with an entity. Not all of them will be the primary beneficiary, because remember, the second criteria is you also have to have power. That's the VIE model in a nutshell. You go through scope exceptions. You decide whether or not you have a variable interest. You 
evaluate whether it's a VIE and you decide if you're the primary beneficiary. There are definitely some complications thrown in around the periphery, around related parties. Um, it's a reassessment uh, model, so you have to continuously reassess whether or not it's a VIE based on trigger events or whether or not you're the PB just over time. The other thing to note, right, is if the entity is a VIE and you conclude you're not the primary beneficiary, you don't have to then go to the voting model. You're done. You don't consolidate the entity. However, you do have disclosure requirements. So if, you're, if you have a relationship with a VIE and you're not consolidating, just keep think about what, mind. yeah, keep that yeah. in mind about disclosures. Yeah. So can I ask you, let's rewind a minute. Let me ask you two questions. Sure. So you mentioned, obviously, figuring out if you have a variable interest and you gave a pretty straightforward example, which <laughs> is that you have an equity interest. Um, I know it can get a lot more complicated very quickly. So can you just give some examples of some other types of variable interests that people should be thinking about when they're evaluating that? Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. The one I gave was one that would also get you potentially in trouble in the voting model. Not right. in trouble, but you know, yeah, it wasn't right. in the voting model. Um, yeah, so other variable interests could include guarantees. Um, which you know wouldn't force you into consolidation in the voting model, but you know is a variable interest uh, because a guarantee right does provide you with some economic exposure to to changes in value of the entity that you're looking at. You know uh, some debt investments um, could be variable interest. They're all technically variable interest, but the higher in seniority, the less risk you have of of actually consolidating um, leases, particularly certain provisions under structured leases where you have purchase options or residual value guarantees. Those could be variable interests. Uh, certain decision maker contracts, and this is where a bunch of the changes have come through over the last few years. But certain decision maker contracts en- enable you to participate in a very significant way in the entity's economics, which may rise to the level of being a variable interest. So basically, if you have a significant relationship with an entity and you have exposure to the entity's economics, you could have a variable interest in the entity. Absolutely. So then, my other question, just to clarify, is it's almost seems backwards. First, you figure out if you have a variable interest. Then you figure out if it's a variable interest entity. And it's like, wouldn't I figure out first whether it's a variable interest entity? So why do we think about it that way? Yeah, I mean, it, it is a chicken and egg analysis. It's, you know, I can't tell you that you absolutely have to do it the way I said to do yeah, it. Yeah, you of, kind of do, you kind of have to figure them out at the same time. Absolutely, absolutely. So that's the way I think about it because it just seems to be like a logical flow in my head. But I do know that other people probably think first, I'm going to figure out if it's a VIE, and then I'm going to go figure out if I have a VI. Yeah. Either way, I think you get to the same place. Right. Well, and I think a lot of times people think which one is going to be easier to figure out, and maybe they start there, or maybe they think they can get past, not get past, but not have to apply VIE because it's very clear, perhaps, that you don't meet the definition that's of right. a VIE. That's right. Okay, so that's helpful. So then we've mentioned the voting model, right. the OE model, which... <laughs> does not exactly roll off the tongue. Um, So can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Also, the VOE or voting model, those are both made-up terms kind of by the industry. So there's nothing that you'll find in the codification or gap that says, here's the voting model. It's just kind of what what we're left with if the entity is not a VIE or we get a scope exception. We then go on and we say, all right, do I, as the reporting entity, have a controlling financial interest in this entity through other means? Generally, again, like we learned in Accounting 101, it comes with um, a unilateral control concept, right? So if I have 51 plus percent of the vote of the common shares of an entity, a lot of times, and particularly in the voting model, that means I have unilateral control, right? What I say goes. Same can be said for um, majority of a board of directors, right? I might have four out of seven board seats, and because I have the majority, what I say goes. 
if it was always that easy, you know, you know, we wouldn't have had to uh, spend that much time in accounting 101 class. So there are um, exceptions to that rule. Like I said, it's a unilateral control model. So there could be a situation where I have majority vote, but a minority investor is granted certain rights. Um, and if those rights rise to a level which we call a participating right or substantive participating right, um, then maybe I don't have unilateral control. Right? So, so what types of things would give me those participating rights? Right. So um, sometimes you might grant or an entity might grant a minority investor approval rights over the operating budget or capital budget. Um, sometimes you might see a minority investor get approval rights over the hiring or firing or comp of um, executive management, like the CEO and CFO. Those are the types of decisions that rise to the level of a substantive participating right. And if a minority investor holds those rights, the majority investor might not consolidate, might not have unilateral control. The minority investor you know, does get typical protective rights. Um, in fact, in most states, I think there are requirements or laws for minority investors to be able to approve liquidations, dissolutions, changes to the articles of incorporation. Um, those types of protective rights generally won't preclude a majority investor from consolidating. So it's important to think through um, what are the rights that each party has in these, in these arrangements and uh, really understand if they rise to the level of a substantive participating right before concluding. Okay, so Matt, that's helpful. I have a question for you, though, and you triggered it when you talked about the 51% ownership interest. You made a point when we were talking about VIEs that you don't go to the consolidation model. Like, if you're not the primary beneficiary, but you're dealing with a VIE, you don't go to consolidation. But then do you go to equity method? And I was thinking about it because of the percentages, you know, 20% or whatever. So how does equity method fit into these models? Yeah, absolutely. In either model, um, the VIE model or, you know, the voting interest model, if you conclude that you don't consolidate, you still have to figure out how to account for the interest that you're holding. So the reason you were thinking about the the voting model might be because you held an equity interest. And you might rise to the level of having you know, significant influence and also meeting the other criteria, which is you have a uh, common stock or in substance common stock investment. You may very well fall into the equity method after doing this, uh, this analysis. You might get into the new cost method right under uh, ASC 321. Um, so yeah, you have to figure out how to account for any interest. If it's a guarantee, like we talked about with other variable interests, there's guidance around that, right? And that might result in a, a, a liability being put on your books and, instead of consolidation. So Always go one step further. And like I said, you had to think about disclosures. You also got to think about what, what accounting might result from the interest that you hold. Right. So basically, start with VIE. You might have an off-ramp to other GAP. But if you're not a VIE, then you do the voting interest model. And if, you're, if you don't meet consolidation there, then you also take the same off-ramp, basically, to the other um, GAP. That's right. So the other thing I was thinking about when you're talking is, what are some of the key areas of judgment that you think companies should be focused on as they're thinking through this? Yeah, I mean, the consolidation model in general is judgmental, so that's fair. I mean, I think there's judgment around what the most important decisions are in an entity. So when you're trying to think about if you have power over an entity, you're really supposed to do an analysis of what drives the economic success of that entity. Um, and, And that includes thinking about why the entity was set up the way it was set up, who designed it, why was it designed that way, what risks was it meant to share amongst its variable interest holders, all of that is, is a lot of judgment to apply to an entity and thinking about what decisions ultimately drive the success of an entity, it's hugely judgmental, right? So that's one area um, where, you can, where you can see different reporting entities maybe take a different approach and, and maybe even end up with a different answer. I think there's judgment involved in the voting model like we talked about in terms of really going through the list of shareholder rights in terms of what rises to the level of a substantive participating rights. And it may differ by entity. And you think about a startup entity that has really a lot of reliance on 
the operating and capital budget because it's going to change so much from year to year versus a mature business where you know, maybe, it's, maybe it's less important, right? So there's a lot of judgment involved there as well. You made me think of another question then actually about participating rights. So you listed some examples of participating rights and you talked about the fact if the minority shareholder has them, then the majority shareholder may not consolidate. Is it an automatic, the minority shareholder has one participating right, so the majority shareholder does not consolidate? Or is that another area of judgment? It's an area of judgment. Um, and, and again, different reporting entities may take different approaches. I think the way I think about it is if you have substantive participating rights, then you end up in a situation where the majority investor doesn't consolidate. And when I think about what, a, what substantive participating rights are, it could be one. Um, so if you have one that's, that, for example, the approval of the operating or capital budget in a startup entity, that might be enough. So then because I think that's substantive, if the minority investor holds that, I would say the majority investor likely wouldn't end up consolidating. But you might have to look at the full list and say, on its own, maybe that right wasn't substantive enough to right to rise to the level to preclude consolidation. But because there are so many or because there are two that were important together, that might be enough to say it's substantive. So yeah, how you look at it, how you group them, you know. Can get judgmental. Yeah. But so it seems like for all of this, then sort of the bottom line is, it's really intended to capture the economics or the economic substance of the arrangement, right? So if you have control over um, or power over decision-making, you're the one who's exposed to the most losses. I mean, those types of things at the end of the day hopefully are reflected then in your consolidated financial statements. Yeah, absolutely. And you can see based on the history of the way the consolidation guidance evolved is that the changes that were made over the last 15 or 20 years were really meant to address um, substance over form, like right. you said, right? right? So we're trying to get it to a situation where we feel like we're capturing in a set of consolidated financial statements all of the entities with which you have a controlling financial interest. And, you know, the terminology around how to get there maybe changed over time in terms of economic risk and rewards versus power. But it was always meant to capture situations where it was more appropriate to show those assets and liabilities of that entity combined with yours to the investor because it provided more useful information, right? Okay, so before we move then to our, just our last couple topics, one last question. Um, how about partnerships or joint ventures? I know that can also be a very specific area with some nuanced questions. Is there anything our listeners should be thinking about there? Yeah, so partnerships have always been a little bit different um, than a, maybe a typical corporate consolidation model. Back, um, back before the FAS 167 days, there was an EITF that came out to address partnerships, and that's kind of been rolled into the VIE model and then changed again over time. So it's evolved. Um, what I'd say now is you know, the way the consolidation model works is you start with the VIE model, again, similar to corporations, and there's a provision that essentially all partnerships are going to be evaluated in the VIE model unless the uh, limited partners have substantive participating rights, like we discussed, or substantive kickout or liquidation rights over the general partner. So that means, you know, f- for the most part, limited partnerships are going to be evaluated in the VIE model. Those that will be in the voting model, because those participating rights or kickout rights existed, generally will result in the general partner not consolidating, right? Because we've already concluded that the limited partner can remove the, right. the general partner. So it's an interesting kind of evolution of the where consolidation landed for for partnerships but it's one thing one key thing to remember if you remember anything about partnerships is they're generally going to be in the vie model um so kind of 
Make sure you start there. Start there. Exactly. Excellent. Okay, so we've talked now quite a bit about a lot of complicated gap. <laughs> uh, so maybe can you summarize for the listeners why they should care? Like, sort of what's the impact of all this? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I guess I started with this being a building block of financial reporting, and I really think that's probably the biggest impact and and the main reason why you should really understand how consolidation works because. What it ultimately ends up in is a grossed-up balance sheet and income statement. You're taking another entity and you're consolidating it into your your financial reporting results. So what does that mean, right? If that other entity has a significant amount of debt, well, you should definitely be cognizant about how much debt's going to be added to your balance sheet because it's going to affect your ratings and, and uh, ratios and, and ratios, yeah. exactly, and maybe even your debt covenants, mm-hmm. right? So it's super important to remember that. And also on the PL side, keep in mind that the PL of that entity is now going to be consolidated with yours. So if you're invested in or associated with a startup entity or an entity that does a lot of R&D activities, and R&D is an important line item on your P&L, well, now your R&D expense is going to be greater because you're consolidating that entity line by line. So again, that's really important to keep in mind and why I think the most important thing that folks should consider when they're thinking about consolidation. But there are other things too, right? So if you think about the way GAP is moving, particularly around new ASUs that have come out over the past few years, there's been a bunch that have embedded the concept of control. Right, so think about ASC 606, the new RevRec standard, right? And you can recognize revenue now, not necessarily when the uh, economic risks and rewards are transferred, but when control over the uh, inventory is transferred to the customer. And the concepts around control are very similar. Control is built into sales of businesses, business combinations on the, on the purchase side, sales of non-financial assets, uh, even leasing, um, where you see an analysis where you have to go through whether or not there's an embedded or implicit lease, it's about whether or not you obtained control of the asset. And all the concepts where we think about control are the same as those that are in the consolidation guide. And so it really is um, kind of a movement and gap towards uh, more of a control model than an economic risk and rewards model. Well, also, it seems like, especially with all those different areas, as a company, making sure you have a consistent sort of lens that you're using to think through those items and that you're not making one conclusion in one area that's inconsistent with a different conclusion. Seems to be that that would be important. Absolutely. Absolutely. Consistency is always good. Yes, exactly. Okay, so that's helpful. So then why don't we wrap things up actually with something simpler, which is I know that there has been some recent guidance that might help private companies. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So as part of the private company council on, on the FASB, they've they've explored you know various ways to make financial reporting less of an economic and uh, time burden for, for private companies. So a new ASU came out in 2018. It was 2018-17. Uh, and it essentially gave private companies a scope exception around applying the VIE model for entities that are under common control. Right, So there used to be a scope exception for private companies before this, but it was very limited to leasing entities and leasing relationships between entities under common control. And it also had some other criteria that you had to meet, so it was difficult to apply that situation. So the, the FASB issued this new guidance and said, hey, if you're a private company and a reporting entity and there's a sister entity or a brother entity under a common parent, you don't have to think about that for consolidation as long as all of the entities that I just mentioned, you, the sister entity, and the parent are private. Right, so it's it's a what I think is a, a very good scope exception, if you're a private company and if you don't have plans in the future to go public, uh, to think about utilizing because it's going to save you a lot of time and a lot of effort. So then, Matt, one thing though that's important on this this is only for entities that you're under common control with. So even if I'm a private entity, 
I still need to look for other variable interests. Is this a specific scope exception? Is that correct? That's right. So the yeah, it, if you're a private company, you still have to think about VIE guidance for third-party entities. For entities that are under common control, common example might be you have a common parent, and you have the operations in one entity and the real estate in another entity with a lease between the two. The scope exception would apply there. Similarly, if you have a manufacturing arm and a sales and marketing arm under a common parent, you don't have to think about consolidation. But yes, for third parties, you, you absolutely still have to apply the BIE guidance. And so then is this early, can you early adopt this guidance or when is this guidance effective? It's not effective until 2022 for calendar year-end companies, um, but you can early adopt, absolutely. It was, it was released at the end of uh, 2018, so adoption's available. And what if you're already consolidating an entity that you're under common control with? If you adopt this, are you able to deconsolidate? Yes, you, you can deconsolidate if you adopt this in uh, early adopted either in 2019 or 2020. Uh, you can deconsolidate an entity. So it might be more work at that time, but then perhaps save work in the future. That's right. Yeah. That's so, right. yeah. So this sounds like definitely a good alternative for private companies. So Matt, thanks so much for coming on today. Really appreciate you taking us through this guidance and looking forward to um, getting into our new consolidation guide. All right. Pleasure to be here. And to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this consolidation refresher and find our updated consolidations guide useful. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to our podcast series on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you find your content. And we'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.